and welcome to Get Me Another, the podcast where we explore those movies that followed in the wake of blockbuster hits and attempted to replicate their success. My name is Chris Iannacone, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Rob Lamorgis. Hello, everybody. Now, this week, we'll be discussing three lesser-known sci-fi films from the early 1980s, two from the United States, and one from legendary Hong Kong film studio Shaw Brothers. First up today is a movie released in 1983 by Columbia Pictures, Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. In two weeks, Columbia Pictures will present 3D as you've never seen it before. The first quality 3D film backed by a major studio. The first to use a new state-of-the-art 3D process. This is Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. It's the story of three unlikely heroes. Their destination, the Forbidden Zone. Their mission, save three stranded women. I like her. Their chances, one in a million. I'll take that bet. Columbia Pictures presents outer space as you've never seen it before. The ultimate 3D experience. Can't anything be simple anymore. Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone. In 3D, the first movie that puts you in outer space. Rated PG. Coming soon to a theater near you. Space Hunter was executive produced by Ghostbusters director Ivan Reitman. It began production under director Jean Lafleur, who was fired by Columbia Pictures after two weeks of filming and replaced by Lamont Johnson. Johnson had a very long career directing primarily in television. Over the course of his career, he won two Emmys and five DGA awards. And Space Hunter, when it when it came out in in 1983, was part of the short-lived. Uh, 3D boom of the early 1980s that included movies such as Coming At Ya in 1981, Parasite, Friday the 13th Part 3, Jaws 3D, and Treasure of the Four Crowns. And it also included another movie we'll cover in this series a little later, 1985's Star Chaser, The Legend of Orin. Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, was released May 20th, 1983, one week before Return of the Jedi. Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone centers around space salvager named Wolf, who intercepts a message that an escape pod from a destroyed Starliner has crashed on the ruined planet Terra-11. He heads there in hopes of rescuing the survivors and claiming the reward of 3,000 megacredits. Terra-9 is a barren world filled with scavengers and marauders. The three women from the escape pods are captured by a warlog named Overdog McNabb. Wolf soon teams up with a teenage scavenger named Nikki, who claims to be able to lead him into Overdog's territory, known as the Zone. And over the course of the movie, they encounter a series of deadly threats and form a friendship in their quest to rescue the women from the Forbidden Zone. And if that sounds exciting to you... You would be mistaken, because this movie, we had not seen this movie before, and it, it I mean, listen, it's a hundred floors of fright, they all can't be winners, and I'm afraid Adventures in the Forbidden Zone was not one of them. Rob, I know you agree with me on this. Yeah, Space Hunter is its own thing, <laughs> and... <laughs> You know, the most unforgivable part of Space Hunter for me, and I'm watching it at home, streaming. uh, Sure. So that's going on. But I know this movie was 
a 3D exhibition. And yes. there is such a lack of cheap 3D effects in this. Uh, outside of the opening credits, uh, I don't even know that anything came to the, the, the camera. Yeah, and that was that was the thing in this era of 3D. If you watch something like Friday the 13th Part 3, uh, and which is amazing, you know, you get these bits where they do the, you know, like the yo-yo comes out at the audience or the, you know, it's 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 there's almost none of it here. I feel like the 3D was an afterthought and that was that was the way 3D worked at the time. It's not like sort of the post Avatar uh, era of 3D where it's not about things coming out at the audience, it's about sort of depth. Not here. This was about stuff coming out of the audience, and they just don't have it. <laughs> no, not at all. I'm missing that Dr. Tongue's 3D House of Beef uh, quality to yes. the 80s 3D revival. But, um, oh. Oh, boy. Last week, we discussed two films that blended elements from Star Wars and fantasy films such as Excalibur and Conan the Barbarian. Similarly, Space Hunter... Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, is a blend of Star Wars space adventure with Mad Max-style post-apocalyptic action. At least in theory. In practice, it doesn't capture anything about what made either Star Wars or Mad Max exciting in any way. I, it, it, you know, it's not just this is a bad movie. Um, you know, hey, we all see bad... It's it's just... It, it, honestly, it was, it was the most... Dull movie I think we've watched since uh, The Shape of Things to Come, way back in episode two. Like, it's just kind of a slog. Um, unlike last week's You're the Hunter from the Future, which despite not necessarily being the greatest movie of all time, has is filled with a joyous spirit of entertainment, Space Hunter, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, is not. It's kind of just dull and derivative. Yeah, this movie, I it works against itself quite a yeah. bit. Um, one area I'll just bring up and look, the score is good. It's Elmer Bernstein. Sure. Uh, so it's, it's not like they had a slouch, uh, you know, doing the, no. doing the music, but it's not at all in kind of that heroic John Williams vein. It sounds much more, it's much more militaristic. It sounds like this could be the A team or spies like us. And it just, it's very bizarre to have that kind of jaunty military comedy style music going over what is supposed to be space and post-apocalyptic uh, nightmare scenarios. And and it's weird because I noticed with the music, you had some of those, the, the, the fanfare stuff. The, and then you also had these, these, these Renaissance fair sounding flutes at various <laughs> points where it was like, wait, what? I, I, I just, I kind of, I didn't know what to make of it. It was, it was, it's a very strange movie, but it's just kind of like, it, it's kind of, an ex, it kind of exists. Like the concept's not a bad one. Like the idea of the lone wolf, no pun intended, space adventure, finding companionship with a runaway girl has possibilities, but the film doesn't really explore any of them. You never get the sense that Wolf is actually lonely or that he has a hole in his heart that needs to be filled. It's very strange from a character point of view. I don't, I don't quite know what to make of it. Yeah, I mean, to that, to, to get into some of the meat of it, um, mm. the relationship between, I would say, our three main characters, what, Wolf, Nikki, and then Washington, who yes. was played by uh, Ernie Hudson, who knew Wolf in the army back in the day, right. uh, and so they have history and they are kind of antagonistic. 
But as the movie goes on, they just kind of change those relationships as the story requires without actually getting to an incident that would actually change characters' minds. So uh, one example is whether or not Wolf uh, thinks Nikki is just some burdensome kid uh, who he only needs to find Overdog or whether or not he actually has feelings for her which and are those feelings romantic or are they paternalistic? I, I have no clue. I had the same thought. I was like, I'm not sure if he thinks of her as like you know from a fatherly point of view or a possible you know because it is a young Molly Ringwald who plays uh, Nikki. The the cast includes Peter Strauss plays Wolf, uh, Molly Ringwald plays the young Nikki, Ernie Hudson is Washington. And Michael Ironside plays Overdog McNabb. And we'll come back to him in a second. But so it is Molly Ringwald, you know, about a year before 16 Candles. Um, and, and you know, she's she's not unattractive. So I'm not quite sure. Again, but if, if it was romantic, it feels way problematic. And it's just like I, the, the film does not make clear how anybody feels about anything. Um, Washington yeah. is antagonistic in trying to capture them and steal the the ransom for the uh the kidnapped princesses Uh, yes but then later just has a change of heart and says oh no i really like you uh wolf after all and i'm gonna help you and then has heart to hearts with nikki about wolf that make no sense character wise with what's been set up um we mentioned that Michael Ironsides plays the, the primary villain of the piece uh, with the ridiculous name of Overdog McNabb. Um, can we talk about this movie's Michael Ironside problem? Specifically... The fact that he's not in it? <laughs> yeah, that it takes 47 minutes for the film to introduce his character. 47 minutes out of a 90-minute movie. Like, you know what? Come on, Space Hunter. Don't waste your Ironside like that. Because he's great when he's on screen. Yeah, You've cast Michael Ironside as your villain and you have him in the movie this this little. It's like having Tom Brady at quarterback and saying you're only going to run the football down the field. Like yeah. you are wasting uh, one of the best assets you have in a movie like this. And I will say yeah, when he's on screen, he is chewing that scenery, but like oh, fantastically yeah. so. And the makeup. And the outfit is actually very interesting for him, too. Yeah, yeah, he's almost, he almost has this kind of spider-like quality. He's kind of like, he's like a almost machine from the, from the, the waist down and his, his torso and head. But his arms are replaced with sort of mechanical, like, pincers, but like giant ones. Uh, if there's any downside to his design, it's that he's not very mobile. So he's not overly threatening, because you feel like, oh, if you just... If you just lean back, he's not going to be able to get you. You know, it's like, oh, well, there you go. Yeah. You missed but me. But unfortunately, I think the, the name Underdog had already been taken, so they needed <laughs> Overdog. Um, you know, from, from the hair and makeup of this movie, we're very definitely in the 80s now. Like, we have left the 70s behind, and, and, and all three of the movies we'll talk about today have a definite 80s stamp to the, to the design. Um, can, can we talk for a second about Chalmers? There's another oh, character in the so movie. Weird. So, so weird. So weird. So the movie begins. Uh, Wolf is this space salvager who, uh, you know, seems to be just kind of flying through, uh, you know, space on his own, you know, trying to pick up what he can. And then we meet basically if Wolf is a Han Solo type, which I guarantee you the original character description was, hey, we want a Han Solo type. But, um, 
you know, but imagine Han Solo without, you know, charisma of any kind. That's kind of Wolf, to be perfectly truthful. But um, basically, his Chewbacca is a sexy female engineer who, when we first meet her, is wearing nothing but a nightshirt. And then she's revealed in the first battle on the planet that she's a robot. And I don't know what to make any of this. There's something odd and creepy about the whole thing. And the way he leaves her behind once she's killed, it's just, it's, it is the weirdest thing. Like, I don't understand. <laughs> I definitely, whether it's intended or not, got boyfriend and girlfriend vibes from them when they yeah. were on the ship. And then it is revealed she's the robot. And then it just goes, I just, I, I, my mate, I just couldn't understand. Chris. Boy, Rob, I don't know. <laughs> Um, we never get to know the three women who need to be rescued, other than that they are the object of, of Overdog's uh, lust. But there's no, like, personality. I mean, oh, it, you get... We have to talk about that, because... Oh, yes, yes. There, that, is, there is a... That yeah, is there's, the a, there's another aspect. Thing. It is. Oh, Overdog, um, apparently, they set it up for the bulk of the film, and with scenes with, with the captured women, where... It is heavily, heavily suggested that Overdog uh, routinely captures uh, women for mm-hmm. sexual purposes. For I mean, sexual it is purposes. Very strongly, very strongly pushed in this direction. Only toward the end of the film for it to be revealed that was a red herring. He is not interested in the women sexually. It is just that he's stealing their life essence because he's been so uh, diseased with the plague or whatever. And this yeah. is the way, like a vampire, that he keeps young. It, it, so the whole time I was going, what a weird thing to put in the movie to like have the, uh, have the main guy essentially just be being after these women in a, in a violent sexual manner. And then when it went away, I thought, why did you ever suggest that? It's so creepy and wrong. In the first then, place. <laughs> yes. Like, if it was just, oh, he wants their essence, you know, like, you know, well, okay, just do that. But why why this weird, weird bait and switch of, you know, sort of sexual depravity for something else? It's honestly everything about this movie is kind of weird and inexplicable. Like, it, like clearly they were trying to mash together Star Wars and, and, and Mad Max. And, you know, the, the production design has got that very kind of... Um, you know, sort of Mad Max junkyard, but like, whereas Mad Max is so cleverly done, like it's it's it it looks like it's chaos, but it's actually incredibly specific. Here, it looks like it's just it's I think it's just chaos. It's like, hey, let's put whatever we can into the into the you know set design, and you know that'll do. And it makes no sense. Uh, at the end, Overdog. Uh, the, at the end of Overdog's, he has his compound where he puts victims through a maze, which end in their inevitable death. And it just it feels like a bargain basement Thunderdome, even though that that movie was still a couple of years away. Like it, it feels like the crappy version of of Thunderdome. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it it was it always shows up in lists of you know Star Wars knockoffs, but it's. Uh, Whew, it's at the bottom of the barrel, I'm afraid. I mean, it's An- just... Another thing um, that I that I noticed I didn't like, I'll be honest. This is another one where when Wolf lands on that planet, he has a very specific goal to get, mm-hmm. uh, to rescue the, you know, the three, the three women who uh, crash-landed here and are being held. 
He then proceeds on a series of unfortunate events. It's yep. another one. It's similar to Krull in that it is episodic. He just goes along and stuff happens. Unlike yeah. Krull, where that at least was the the dark the dark beast or whatever was right. after him and and throwing uh throwing obstacles in his way. Here, right. Overdog doesn't even know Wolf is on the planet. It's yeah. just random stuff that's happening. And, you know, again, it feels a little like Heat, where De Niro and Pacino don't meet <laughs> until way in the end. But you don't get all the cool bank robbery. Um, yeah, I, it's like it's they want to cross like random like, you know, there's there's like these aquatic women that attack them at one point and and uh, it, like these weird albino creatures that attack basically it's a constant series of we get attacked by this random ass thing we get away from it and then we move on to be attacked by the next random ass thing until we uh until we make it to overdog um it's it's a super weird movie i mean i can't i can't really recommend it it's it's i mean i i I guess if you're 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 kind of following through and as as a sort of Star Wars knockoff completist, I suppose. But but uh, you know, usually we could find you know we're 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 not here specifically to take stuff down. But this is just not the best film. And and you know it was it was sort of that was the the bottom line. <laughs> it's like oh yeah. my god. There is one uh, there's one positive to this film. Oh please, yeah, its ability to predict the future. Um, oh, this geez. movie is a filmic Nostradamus because uh, Planet Terra, or excuse me, Terra Eleven, yes, which Terra is 11. where the the bulk of the action takes place, was uh, a planet. It was a colony was put up there before the space war, uh, yeah. and then a plague happened on this planet. Uh, the planet wide outbreak of the PSI plague happened in twenty twenty one. Oh my. Yes, that's right. So it's a year off, uh, yeah, roughly. Still, it's pretty good. But it's pretty good. So I will say someone knew something, and I think we need to get the writers of Space Hunter Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, and I want them to write a new script, uh, and uh, I'll know what's going to happen in about 40 yeah, years. Yeah, you can, you can make you know stock market predictions based on that. And, uh, yes. You know. Buy, buy whatever the next uh, cryptocurrency or whatever I could get. I don't know. It's it, it's it's just uh, it, it 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 was a it was a tough one. I was honestly a little down this week after watching Space Hunter because it was just kind of a slog. And you know, I hung my hopes on our second movie of the week, a film that I had vague memories of seeing on cable in the 1980s, but hadn't watched in what has to be like 30 years. And it was with a little trepidation that I hit play on. The Ice Pirates. At last, the space comedy you didn't know you were waiting to see. The Ice Pirates. In the far distant future, in a galaxy where those in the know don't go, real estate is cheap, and they've got great sushi. But there's no water. You got any uh, water? It is a time when desperate men will swing from the chandeliers. Just to get a drink. Just take a look at that. Good men like Jason, space pirate and explorer of the cosmos. His chief engineer and fellow rogue Roscoe. Oh, here, quit that. And the beautiful, 
Princess Karina. One tiny band who must bust their buns battling the masters of all the water in the galaxy. The evil Mithradoids, famous for not being nice. Killing you would be too easy. I have something better in mind. The Ice Pirates. Rob? I want to be an ice pirate. Yes, it's the perfect occupation for you, Chris. Um, the original version of the Ice Pirates, which was entitled The Water Planet, was written by Krull, screenwriter Stanford Sherman, and it was budgeted at about $20 million. MGM, for all, basically MGM got cold feet and decided to cut the budget to $8 million. They hired Stuart Raffle to rewrite and direct and make the film a comedy. And what results is a low-budget concoction of chaotic sci-fi adventure, pirate movie tropes, screwball comedy, and sheer unvarnished madness. I, um... I love this movie, Rob. I love it with all of my heart. <laughs> yeah, I had uh, not seen this in a very long time, and the the things that were burned in my brain came back out. But I, I do yeah. want to uh, I want to pre award Stuart Raffle, and and we can keep coming back to him as this happens because he is a director that we are going to be seeing quite a bit of uh, as this podcast goes on. <laughs> because yes. Not only did he do The Ice Pirates, but to give you some idea of the tone of his comedy, I'm going to uh, name some other things that this man, uh, gentleman has, has done. He, uh, Tammy and the T-Rex. Yes. Mannequin 2 on the move. Nice. Mac and Me, which is 100% going to show up on another series. Oh, when uh, we do Get Me Another E.T., that is, uh, yeah. that is absolutely going to be included. He also is credited with the story on another film that will wind up being done on this series. Uh, not this series, but the, the podcast. Passenger 57. Nice. Uh, and uh, those in the know will know when that's coming up. Always bet on black, Rob. Always, Always bet on black. Bet on black. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that, is a heck of a, that is a heck of a resume. Um, and, and Ice Pirates is the perfect movie to lead that off. Um, a little bit about the movie. It's set in a universe where water has become so scarce that it's the primary form of currency. Our heroes, led by Jason, uh, played by Robert Urich, are a band of space pirates dedicated to stealing water in its frozen form. Ice. Hence, the Ice Pirates. And during one raid, Jason discovers the beautiful Princess Karina and decides to kidnap her. Uh, Jason and company are almost immediately captured by the Templars who control the remaining water in the universe. And they, send, they are sent to the Templar planet Mithra, where they will all be castrated and sold into slavery. They are saved from those fates by Karina, who wants their help in finding her father, who was lost searching for the mythical seventh planet, a world filled with water. Rob, the plot synopsis doesn't really describe this movie. It doesn't really... There's so many elements that are just bonkers. And beautifully so. Um, yeah. I would say that... Um, here's where I, I would start with trying to give some of the tone of this movie. Um, would be Robert Urich's performance. 
which by the yes. way is fantastic in this. It's great. It's it's um, it's first of all the movie's got a great cast uh, and and headed by a post Vegas pre Spencer for hire Robert Urich as Jason. Now, while you could obviously say if you're looking at doing a Star Wars uh, style film that he would be your Han Solo type, you would be incorrect though because I think it mm-hmm. goes once again to 1977's. Second yes. highest grossing film. He is yes. so Burt Reynolds in this movie uh, in the fantastic. best possible way. In the best way. Oh my goodness. Rob, I want to dress as Jason from Ice Pirates for every <laughs> Halloween from now until... Like, I just want... A, it's every every Halloween I am going to wear a different costume of, of Robert Urich's from Ice Pirates. Because it's all tremendous... And, uh, and and it's it's just, they're all amazing. And I love as the film goes on that his wardrobe gets more and more romance cover, <laughs> romance novel cover, uh, with yes. like the very blousey open shirts. And he's I just, can uh, pull it off. He's just, I can pull oh, it off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, also in this movie, you have Mary Crosby, who is the daughter of Bing Crosby. She plays Princess Karina as a little bit of trivia. Mary Crosby played Sue Ellen's sister, Kristen, on Dallas and is, in fact, the answer to the trivia question, who shot J.R.? Uh, it also stars Michael D. Roberts, Angelica Houston, Ron Perlman, NFL great John Matusik, and Hollywood Square's very own Bruce Falanche. Yeah, it is a stacked cast. Everyone's oh. having a ball with this. Everyone, um, including me. Thank goodness. Yeah. And this is the first film today, but not the last, that I got, me personally, with the comedy mm. and the wackiness, I got very much kind of a, a John Landis vibe off of this, yeah. oddly enough. But early, early. so Early Landis, sure. Like Schlock, Kentucky yep. Fried. A little, this is probably closer to Blues Brothers. Uh, our next yeah. film is closer to the other, other uh, films that I mentioned. Other two, yeah. But, um... So there's this quality of it is it's structured and has the story of a straight film. Yes. Which not surprising given the history of, of the script for this thing. But then when you wind up in scenes, you wind up with almost these Looney Tunes esque um just <laughs> bonkersness where Oh yeah. It, uh and I guess we should give an example. Yeah, we're going to give an example, and as always, there are going to be spoilers, you know, but but for God's sake, we, we as much as we didn't give a spoiler warning for Space Hunter, because we didn't care, um, we, we are <laughs> definitely, if, you, if you're interested in Ice Pirates, go watch it, come back, listen to the rest of the show, because it is, it is wonderful. Um, that's it. Go ahead. So, yes, um, one uh, of many wacky things is uh, they have an alien uh, nod at one point in the middle of this thing yes. where there is a yes. alien egg on a ship. And uh, this little, like, wormy creature, it looks just slimy and evil, you know, is yeah. lots of teeth. Uh, and they're all scared of it, and then it goes away. And then we learn that this is... What's it called, Rob? Way to go! Hitting duck, damn it. What was that? Uh, 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 Spencer. Uh, what? Space herpy. That's disgusting! Yeah, the space herpy. Uh, the ship basically gets a case of space herpes, and it is, as the commercials say, a mild inconvenience. Um, 
I mean, there's so much stuff in... Like, this movie is replete with robots. Like, there's a lot of fighting robots. And they all look like the game. Life-size versions of the robots from the game Rock'em Sock'em Robots. And they basically behave like them, too. And it's fantastic. Um... Oh God! Can we can we talk about Mithra? The 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 so the the, the water of the of the of the universe is controlled by this group, the Templars, who are based on Mithra, and Mithra is a world of '80s robots, face glitter, and wall-to-wall carpeting. I want to live there. Um, there's a there's a scene where people are getting high and they are literally they literally when they get high on Mithra they literally float to the ceiling like they had Willy Wonka's fizzy lifting drinks. It's it's bananas. Um, but you don't want to get on that conveyor belt because my goodness, if you get on the the conveyor belt that they're they're putting the the people through to be castrated, there are these chompers is the best way I could I could say it. Yeah, chompers uh, works for me and. Uh... Yeah, and they're getting shaved as they go down yeah. that conveyor belt to give, uh, you know, again, the, like, kind of gonzo, totally <laughs> unreal comedy that's going on. It's, uh, you know, I guess as as so often when we hit one of these films, this is a movie that is always swinging for the fences. Uh, always. It may, not always, it may not always hit it out of the park for you in a scene, but it's not for want of trying. Uh, yeah, and they are not—they are not concerned about uh, getting a little silly. Oh, they—they—they they, they are getting a little silly. For example, there is uh, a robot pimp. Let me just say that again. There is a robot pimp in this movie that has a television screen in its chest where he shows the girls. You didn't need a robot pimp in this movie, but they put it in anyway. Hey, bloods, y'all want pump some titties? <laughs> yeah. No. Hey, it's been a long time. Fine as kitties on Mithra. No, get the hell out of here. It's it is the early '80s. I did need the casual racism to show up in the movie, and 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 there is less casual racism in a separate part of the film. Uh, yes, but uh, it, it's uh, very. I guess in that way, it's minimal. There are two two yeah. inflection points. Uh, you do get a lot of uh, you know other. <laughs> A lot of sexism as well in this movie. Which is there not is shocking. that too. Um, yeah, and, and and again, it's a movie of its time. You would not make yeah. the movie this way now. Uh, and but you know, you, you sort of judge it as uh, you know as it as it is. Um, I was gonna say there's a lot of uh, other footage from other MGM movies throughout. Like the, it took me the second time in the second establishing shot to realize that the city on Mithra was the dome city from Logan's Run. Uh, and at one point, they're sitting on the spaceship and they're just literally watching, you know, uh, rollerball as if it was like, oh, that's the sport that you watch. And it's like, it's fantastic. And it, it feels then later uh, when they're on one of the planets, they have these space gopher puppets like it's. Caddy oh, yeah, Jack. the gophers. Yeah. And, and I kept waiting for the gophers to then be integral to the plot or to do something. No, and they don't, no it's just cute no. space gopher puppets that. Are a thing for like a little sequence, and and then that's it. I have a plan, Rob. I oh, I, I have it. an idea. I want to build Galaxy's Edge. You know the 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 park mm-hmm. at Disneyland, but for ice pirates. 
Oh. This, this is my ticket to fame and fortune is to is to build the Galaxy's Edge for Ice Park. And better yet, I think a theme park based around sci-fi franchises that are largely forgotten. So you can have Ice Pirates, there's the Ice Pirates section. You can have Yours World. I mean, that's a no-brainer. I mean, my goodness. You can have the Black Fortress from Krull. It would be beautiful. I think that's, that's uh, you know... There's any any angel investors who think this is a great idea. First of all, you shouldn't be in control of your own money, and second of all, please come see us and give it to us because we we could build the uh, you know the, the the galaxy's edge for your and 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 ice pirates, and it would be amazing. Uh, do you want a little uh, a little space hunter section? No, I don't want any space hunter section. <laughs> It'll be right next to Star Crash. Uh, <laughs> Uh, this movie does have a cantina scene, essentially. Yeah. Uh, yes, it does. It's, it's, it's uh, when they go to the pirate planet. On the pirate planet where they run into some tough customers. And they there do. is a bar fight that is amazing. And in oh, my mind, amazing. it may top the violence that occurs in the in the Star Wars cantina. Um, yeah, let, let's just say someone loses their, their, uh, their head entirely. Uh, actually, that, that does bring me up to to one of the few uh, things that I think that one of the few weaknesses of this movie. And if I've, I honestly, if I have any criticism of the Ice Pirates, is they don't use Ron Perlman and Angelica Houston nearly enough. Angelica Houston's the sort of primary person in that scene that we just referred to in the bar, and she may be the most badass character in the movie. Uh, and and honestly the best dressed pirate in cinema history. Oh, 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 wow. Yeah, I, I was I was quite taken with Angelica Houston's character in this movie. Yeah, um, she, she gets at least that style. one scene. She gets that yeah. one scene at the bar. Perlman, I don't even think he quite gets a scene to himself for him to shine, but there is one moment that I love with him, which is oh, when yeah. he has the chef's hat on, like a little yes. giant <laughs> chef's hat. <laughs> As he is serving a cooked bird on the uh, on the spaceship, and when he cuts it, the space herpy comes out, and that's when the space <laughs> herpy comes out. Yes, that's the the that's um, if you were making this today, uh, Angelica Houston's character, that role would be played by Lady Gaga, and she would be the lead <laughs> of the film. She would be the lead of the film and an instant icon, and and it would be it would be amazing. Uh, honestly. Warner Brothers, you you may not realize it, but you have the rights to Ice Pirates in your library. <laughs> Call us. We we got an Ice Pirates reboot for you, and it'll be fantastic. I promise. It's we'll do it for, we'll do a series park. for HBO Max. You know, whatever you like. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think you might need the majesty of the big screen for this one. <laughs> oh, it's true. It's true. Maybe you, you're right. You're right. Um, yeah, I, I think if there's any weak link in the cast, I'm afraid it's Bruce Valanche. Um, but at the same time, the sequence with Bruce Valanche is so insane that it, I, I'm, I'm inclined to overlook that he's not terribly great in the movie. Um, so what happens is the heroes arrive on this planet and they're looking for Karina's father. And they're very, first of all, they're very quickly captured by some really buff Amazon warriors riding unicorns. Which already puts, I mean, just that alone. I think I texted you in the middle of watching. I was just like, yes. Rob, unicorns. <laughs> um, so they're brought before Bruce Flanch, and before he can pronounce whatever judgment he's going to, Roscoe, played by Michael D. Roberts, swings in 
and knocks Bruce Valanche's head clean off, revealing him to be a robot. And it is amazing. And all of this takes place on a set that looks like it's the lobby of the Resorts Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City, New Jersey, circa 1983. It is sublime. Yeah, and the second decapitation in this movie. Yeah, like it's uh, it's it's it, we're not just chopping off arms here. It is we're we're going full heads. This is a movie that, given that it had its budget chopped uh, more in more yeah. than half. Uh, it still delivers a lot of craziness. Uh, there are times when you do see the seams, uh, but it's somehow yeah. just charming. Yeah, it, it kind of doesn't matter. They're, when they're on the fog planet, if you look in the background, you can see the backdrop is, uh, uh, there are folds in it from where it wasn't fully fully tightened. I didn't even notice. I was so entranced by the unicorns, Rob. And I, I had joked about the climax of your... The Hunter for the Future <laughs> taking place at a brewery. This movie actually shot at, at, at the brewery, the Anheuser Busch uh, brewery out in Van Nuys, and you can tell when you're there that it, you really it is can. a it is a redressed brewery uh, that they're using for space purposes. Um, it, but it's uh, it's so fun that I you really kind of don't care. There, there's first of all, there's a love scene. Oh, I got we got to talk about the love scene between Jason uh, and Karina. In yes. a kind of hollow suite where the program playing is Passion Storm. And during <laughs> Passion Storm, not only are you, it's like you're, 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 you're having a love scene in a, in a, a, a raging, you know, tumult, but you're getting wet at the same time. The, the, the actual holograms are real and it's amazing. Um, whoever works out that technology will be rich beyond the dreams of avarice. And trust me, we will include that in our, 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 uh, our Ice Pirates Park. The best part about that love scene is that it comes with 12 minutes of the movie left. It is literally... <laughs> it's, it's as if you were on the verge of uh, taking down the Death Star and you just stopped <laughs> and and then had a, a extended... Extended... Uh, extended. Romantic uh, scene. And that's how things were in the 80s, Rob. You just had... You had you hand random love scenes. There's nothing wrong with being sexy. I don't care what anybody says. Um, now, can we talk about the final battle? Because the final battle is extraordinary. With um, the time warp, yes. Yes, they go through this time distortion field on the way to the seventh planet. And what happens is, like something out of Monty Python, all of the participants age as the battle goes on, which just means you, you, you cut away from Robert Yurick and you cut back to him and he's got a big brushy beard. And the time is so affected that it feels, and for not the first time in this movie, where you're they're doing some frame rate uh, things so that uh, sections appear like it's a fight on a, the Benny Hill show. Uh, where it's, Yakety Sax isn't playing, but it, it very well could be. <laughs> Um, and, and the combatants get older and older, and then finally, and this is this is brilliant, Jason and Karina's son, who was conceived a, a scene or two earlier, naturally played by Robert Urich, a chip off the old block, comes in and wins the fight for the good guys. And then and then of course they leave the time distortion field and everything goes snaps back to normal, but they've won the fight and now they have a glimpse of their future. And when they win that fight and they come out, where do they wind up, Chris? Well, they do arrive at the seventh planet, which, 
revealed in the final scene to be Earth all along. Dun, dun, dun. So you get a little Battlestar Galactica he, thrown in here for good measure. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I, it, it's, it's, it's tremendous. Uh, you know, this movie is not for everybody. <laughs> but the people, the people who it's for, which clearly we are among them, it is, it's amazing. Um, oh, by the way, they, they uh, and this will apply to two movies we're going to talk about this week. I love when movies run the credits over stills from the movie. We don't see that enough anymore, and I think it's awesome. Um, yeah, Ice Pirates is, you know, it's unique. It's a delight. Um, you know, it's, it doesn't quite have necessarily the degree of, of artistry that, that, like, Flash Gordon has in its, you know, like, you know, Flash Gordon is sort of, like, a, a cut above because it's got the, just the degree of artistry in the, in the crafting of that movie and, and the filmmaking is a little higher. But, my God, is this, is this a fun movie? Um, I, I can't believe it took me so long to, to circle back to it, but now I'm going to watch it all the time. And what I most loved about this was this movie, if you watch it, it feels very bonkers and crazy and silly and zany and off the wall. And then if you watch the next film we're going to discuss, it it does not seem so zany. It does not seem so crazy. It seems very straightforward. <sighs> well, that, uh, you know, our third film this week. From legendary Hong Kong film studios, Shaw Brothers, 1983's Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. Now, before we start, I want to give a big thank you to Dylan Chung, a listener and friend of the program. And without his efforts, we wouldn't have been even able to see this film. Like, it is very tough to find, and he was able to, to help facilitate that. And thank you, Dylan. We really appreciate it because, my God, what a movie. Uh, Rob, over the course of this series... We have watched some some bonkers movies that that kind of broke our brains a little bit, going all the way back to Message from Space and Star Crash, uh, to the Man Who Saved the World, but none of those prepared us for Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. Uh, a little background for those who might not be familiar with the Shaw Brothers: uh, since it was founded in 1958, Shaw Brothers Studios has produced more than a thousand films, and at one point owned the largest privately owned film production facility in the world. Uh, while they produce movies in a wide variety of genres, they are most famous for popularizing the kung fu genre in the 60s and 70s. And it's safe to say that Rob, both you and I, are big Shaw Brothers fans. Absolutely. Uh... And, and I love their horror films as well. Uh, there are, Absolutely. There, there are fewer of them. But, uh, you know, you're talking about, uh, what, Human Lanterns. Human uh, Lanterns, The Boxer's Omen. The Boxer's Omen, which uh, prior to this would have been my answer for Craziest Shaw Brothers movie. Yes. This is different. It's not on in the same way or on the same level. But I just think this one is is even more bizarre. Directed by Alex Chung, the film revolves around a private detective who investigates a case of a young woman who is apparently abducted by aliens. But that doesn't cover this film. Like, that description does not tell you anything. 
it draws from such a wide variety of inspirations, ranging from Star Wars to Close Encounters of the Third Kind to the Seven Year Itch to the Deer Hunter. And it's just like this melange of of film references and sources. And it's so, you never, this is a movie you literally know, never know what's going to happen next because the least expected thing will, will be the thing that happens. It's, it is, it's unlike anything I've, I, I've never experienced a movie like this. Yeah. And it is, it, it's always kind of with off the wall comedy. Um, yeah. For instance, in early in this film, there is a scene where there is a commotion on the street. <laughs> yes. And one of the characters rips open their shirt as if they're Superman. And underneath right. is, instead of the Superman logo, the Shaw Brothers the logo. The Shaw Brothers logo. As if he is a Shaw Brothers superhero. And it's just a one-off gag. That joke never comes back. Uh, there's a lot of stuff like that in this movie. Yeah. it's Well, to start with, the opening titles are basically the opening titles from Richard Donner's Superman. Like that, you know, where it's in blue and it comes at the audience. It's, it's you know. And then the first scene, you have this old man who has an encounter with a UFO, which leads to this big investigation on the site where it happens. And it feels straight out of Close Encounters of the Third Kind, replete with, like, classic Spielbergian chaos and lens flare. And the old man even has a sunburn on part of his face, like Richard Dreyfuss and Clotus Counts. Like when he held up his hand to, to block the light is the part that's not, you know, it's, it's, it's so weird. Uh, and then we meet these, this private detective played by James Yi Lu, who laments that he wants to solve real cases like Sherlock Holmes instead of doing marital fidelity work, uh, marital infidelity work, and oddly collecting for a loan shark. Uh, and then we have the, the incident in the street with a, the beautiful woman played uh, named Zen, played by Sherry Chung. Uh, and she literally causes a traffic accident when her high heel gets stuck in a grate and her dress is blown up Marilyn Monroe style. And all of this is completely ridiculous and over the top. But it's also emblematic of the movie as a whole because the sequence is so incredibly well executed and technically proficient. Like the cars pile up in like an A-frame and then another car crashes in and then the like somebody, you know, like a fire starts. A guy drops a cigarette and a fire starts and it's all incredibly well done, but just bananas. And that's kind of this movie is you just, it's like switching channels, but all of them are really well made. Yeah, and, and pretty much directly after that sequence, you then cut to inside of a department store makeup counter with completely, mostly completely different characters with no yeah. reorientation. So this movie has a, like two or three different tracks, story tracks running at any given time. And it will, you do, you're just going to have to wait for them to come together, which they do. Yeah. And they honestly, I, I wasn't they sure. They all do. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, 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 well, we'll get to that in a minute. So, Zen uh, uh, works as a beautician at the department store and she's fired for being too beautiful and distracting her customers. Then she meets this young rich man and they immediately fall in love. And you have this whole section of the movie which is their romance and where he takes her to meet his father who's a wealthy man and the father wants to test to see if she's a virgin. And his insistence that his son's bride be a virgin is predicated on the fact that nothing in his family is secondhand. But it it, it it's first of all, this movie is is not politically correct by any 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 modern standards. There's a 
ton <laughs> of incredibly <laughs> problematic content in it. If you're sensitive to that, it may not be the one for you, but it is it is so weird. And it's again, it's coming out of a different time and place. Um, I mean, uh, what happens with the, Rob? What happens with the the father? Oh, second hand. Yes, yes. The father's claiming he doesn't want anything second hand, and 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 then a thing happens down the line where where you know a, a thing happens that I just did not see coming. He he literally the son rebelling against the father literally pulls off his father's hand, revealing it to be a fake hand. I. What? Like I just I didn't under I like I didn't understand what what that is. It's insane. Yeah, I mean, and to talk about the whole sequence of events that you've been talking leading up to this. I mean, I just want to retrace our steps a little because there are moments all along the way for this that are just just very like they're funny but they're crazy. <sighs> so in the perfume counter when yes. she's getting fired for having been uh, you know, too sexy. Uh yeah. the the owner manager, her husband comes and he's one of the ones who is drooling he all over this woman. finds her very attractive, yeah. But this woman had gotten uh, kind of hit in the eye and there's something in her eye, the, the makeup counter girl's in. So yeah. she, it looks like it's a comic cartoon winking, which only makes the old man even more horny and the wife even angrier. Uh, and then uh, <laughs> later down the line, uh, she wants to... Uh, kill herself by drinking the perfume after she's been fired. Oh yeah, I forgot so, about that because a lot of weird attempted suicide yeah, in this movie. There's a lot of it. Uh, but then when that rich guy comes, the, the son who wants who then winds up wanting to marry her, how is he introduced, Chris? Oh, that's right. He comes down in a musical, like a full musical number in the middle of yeah. the department store makeup area. And it just kind of goes, I mean, it's it is the Hong Kong version of it, but it is like very Bollywood in that sense where... Oh, yeah. And this movie has a few of those where it will just segue into full-on musical numbers, although they often mm -hmm. uh, become musical montages, which also move you forward yes. in time, which is interesting. Yes. Uh, anyway. Uh, yeah. So it, meanwhile, the private detective is trying to collect a debt for the loan shark that he works off. Uh, and... and Oh God, Rob! I, uh, he goes to the to the guy that owes the money, and 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 the guy doesn't you know doesn't says he doesn't have the money. How do we? I don't even know how to describe the scene because it's so you know. At one point, the guy says, "If you could prove you have fifteen children, you know," and and they cut to them like counting kids that he's clearly borrowed from the neighbor. And it's I spent more of this movie with my jaw literally hanging open, just in shock, than. Any movie that I've seen of late, even Ice Pirates, it's just like it, there's a scene where he's like he, the guy that he's trying to collect the debt from says, "Oh yeah, I still have three Vietnamese relatives living with me," and you then cut to three guys, three Vietnamese guys playing Russian roulette like out of the Deer Hunter, and I just did not know how to like I was, I was genuinely in shock by by the turns this movie made. I, I honestly, I, I tried to take notes, but then I kind of just—it was so bizarre that I, I couldn't even—I couldn't even make heads or tails of it. And, and the little, the little jokes and moments like the deer hunter reference—it really did start to remind me not just of like the scatological Kentucky Fried movie type thing, yeah. but also of then those, you know, the late '90s, early aughts parody boom. 
that happened. Now, the, the the tone and style is way, way different. Um, way different. You know, some of those movies often felt like a collection of references. Right. Whereas this feels like the references are always a joke within, uh, you know, the, the story as a whole. It's like some of the films of Edgar Wright, where it's like you have Shaun of the Dead or Hot Fuzz, and... They are are both satire. They are they're satirizing a genre, but they're also so well done that they're part of the genre itself. And and it feels like if Edgar Wright, if, if it was like if Edgar Wright made a, a, like this weird adaptation of Amazon Women on the Moon, where you're like flipping channels to a different a different thing every five minutes, that would be kind of what this movie is. Except you know. From Hong Kong and made in 1983, so it's just a whole other bag. Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, I was going to say, there are some important, uh, from what you've heard us say uh, so far, you might wonder, why are we talking about this on Get Me Another Star Wars? Oh, 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 stick with us, folks, because it's going <laughs> to, it, it, just trust us. That uh, you know, we're not we're not just we're not just uh, certifiable madmen here. We have a, a purpose. So Zen, it's around this time in the movie that Zen is abducted by aliens, and I will say that she is basically abducted by the Millennium Falcon. Like yes, it is absolutely. full on. It is the Millennium Falcon, and then she is abducted by aliens and and probed by by the aliens after they play the song Twinkle Twinkle Little Star in a very Close Encounters-esque way. Uh, yes. It is not do-do-do-do-do. It's tink, 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 tink. But, <laughs> but with ethereal alien noises. Right. So then, upon learning that, that she's been abducted, uh, her fiancé's father goes ballistic and gives the son the ultimatum of do you want the girl who is now damaged goods in his mind or do you want your inheritance and what do you think the son chooses does he choose love rob no he chooses the money <laughs> and that dude's out of the movie for that's it he's done he's out of the movie like it's like no i want the inheritance and boom he's gone he, he it's it's yeah and and <laughs> then what clearly happens is poor zen uh who now no longer is going to marry the rich guy. She doesn't have a job. She got abducted by aliens who had sex with her against her will. And so clearly now she's going to be in a bad place. Right, Chris? Right. Well, naturally, what, what would her be her recourse at this point? Except to become a celebrity for having been abducted by aliens who slept with her. And now she's a movie star and one of the most famous people in Hong Kong. But we're, we're skipping a point because before that, she tries tying herself to train tracks at the exact time that the private detective and his, and his assistant are doing the same thing because the guy that they were trying to collect the debt on, that they did collect the debt on, killed himself because they collected the debt. So all three of them meet at the train tracks that they are tied to. What?! Yeah, like, like it's an old Wild West melodrama. <laughs> they have rope on train tracks. Rope. Yeah. And so the guy decides, the private detective decides, he is going to sort of get the, the evidence. Like, he's going to investigate her abduction case. And that's going to give, 
Oh God, there's something I forgot about. Oh, oh wait. So the, the I, I see. Oh, I, I, my brain has been scrambled by Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. I can't. Uh, so yeah, he decides he's going to investigate her abduction, and that's going to give his life purpose. But back before this, at the very beginning of the movie, there's a sequence where a scientist, Dr. Wu, is in a lab testing some kind of secret formula on himself and an ape. And he doesn't appear again for so long, I started to think I hallucinated the scene, Rob. I know, you were texting me and I, I, had, to call, I had to talk you down. He's coming Was back. Was that part Don't of worry. the movie or did I just imagine that? Yeah, <sighs> and he comes back. Uh, he does. And he, says he does he come back. Help. He can help prove that the aliens came and that yes. uh, that Zen is not uh, not fibbing or crazy. And this is when we have the montage musical sequence where she becomes a celebrity movie star, um, it, it, you know, because of her abduction. And the private eye is kind of on the outside looking in after all that he's done. Yeah. And then uh, she winds up living with Dr. Wu, whom she calls Godfather. Yeah, and, that happens. Uh, and then, uh, you know, one night when there is a full moon, I believe, uh, he kind of does his werewolf slash Mr. Hyde transformation and tries exactly to attack or does attack her. He does um, attack her. So, okay. The private eye now, even, even more on the outs than he was before, decides to take matters into his own hands and get to the bottom of these abductions. So naturally, what does he do, Rob? Uh, he goes, uh, he decides to go undercover as a woman uh, to see if he can find the aliens because we they know that the aliens were after women. Right. So he goes to the, the park where other women have collected in hopes of being abducted and getting the same fame and fortune uh, that Zen had. So he goes undercover as a woman. And sure enough, what happens? A UFO... A slightly different UFO, not the Millennium Falcon, but another UFO shows up and abducts him. And there's this whole scene where he's strapped to the table and they're they're talking about turning him into the queen of breeding, seemingly unaware that he's a guy. Uh-huh. So, yeah, that all happens. And then we get to the climactic scene of the movie, which is why we included it in this series. A Darth Vader-esque figure enters the room, whips out a lightsaber, and you have this extended fight scene between the private eye who gets free and, and Darth Vader, and Darth Vader's wielding a lightsaber naturally, and the private eye use a pair of light nunchucks. If you could imagine a lightsaber in nunchuck form, and the guy, still dressed as a woman, and you have this extended fight scene, which I have to say is incredible. Yeah, but it has still all of these gags in it. Like at one oh, point yeah. before the light nunchucks, when uh, the yes, you know, the, when the the detect or the private eye still had uh, a light saber, one of the jokes is that his isn't as long as the fake Darth Vader's. Yeah. When he does have the lightsaber nunchucks. He keeps doing the move where you throw one of the nunchucks into your armpit and he keeps it yeah, there. Yeah, and but it then, sets his coat on fire. Yeah, because yeah, it's a lightsaber, so it's burning his armpit. But he keeps <laughs> doing it because that's what he's used to doing with nunchucks. Uh, it's 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 bonkers. And all on a set uh, that looks vaguely like it could be the end of Empire Strikes Back. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. Everything in this scene, 
from the fight choreography, the multi-level sets that, again, clearly uh, evoke the duel in Cloud City from Empire Strikes Back, all of it is so incredibly well done. It is the best lightsaber fight that is not in an actual Star Wars film. And that's the real thing about Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. It's insane, it follows no narrative logic as I can understand, and it's problematic as hell, but the scenes themselves are so well-crafted, you can't help but admire them. Yeah, and uh, you know, I will say, uh, you know, all of the performances, everyone is giving it their all. Um, yeah. And you can tell that they are going for it uh, in in big big ways. So none none of this is naturalized performance uh, outside of no. maybe a few minor roles. Um, and it is um, I, it looks like everyone's having a, a blast doing this. Uh, I don't know why they wouldn't have. It is unlike anything I've ever seen before. To wrap up, again at the end, uh, the Darth Vader figure is revealed to be the evil Doctor Wu who apparently built his own UFO for reasons I will honestly admit I still don't understand why he did that. Um, but it turns out the aliens themselves are real because the Millennium Falcon ship returns at the end just in time for the Private Eye and Zen's wedding where they open a hatch and dump cake onto the newlyweds. Like, like completely, like... Like William Atherton at the end at the in, in Marshmallow at the end of, of Ghostbusters. My goodness, this movie is so crazy. I I I started to question what I was actually watching or whether I was seeing this or having some kind of psychotic break. Because it's it's insane. It's a we've seen a lot of crazy movies, but I don't know if anything can top Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. No, but I you know, we'll keep trying. <sighs> We will. Uh, and, oh, we absolutely will. And uh, hopefully this one will get a uh, release at some point. Uh, it's also possible that prints are floating around as far as it coming to yeah. uh, a repertory theater or whatever. Yeah, and, that, and that, that, that scene at the lightsaber duel at the end, I was like, it was honestly the best lightsaber fight outside of an actual Star Wars movie. It was incredible. And that encapsulates, it encapsulates what you were yeah. talking about in that... That scene is a comedy fight, but the fight is a real fight so and it's good. good. Yeah. Yeah. So it, they're making it funny, but it is, they're also actually doing the thing. Well, again, this was this was Shaw Brothers at sort of, maybe not their peak, but just a little bit past it in the early 80s. Their peak was probably the mid to late 70s of uh, of the, the, the kung fu movies they did. This is a little bit past that, but they're still doing really good. You know, this was around the same time as uh, Eight Diagram Pole Fighter, which for my money has the best kung fu fight in any movie ever. Uh, and this was, and, and you know, from the same studio. So they had all those resources to draw from. Uh, it's a it's a fascinating and bizarre movie. Um yeah, that, I think that brings us to the end of today's uh, admittedly very odd episode. Uh, but rest assured, listeners, we will be returning to normalcy next week with David Lynch's Dune. Okay, well, maybe not quite normalcy, but we'll be discussing David Lynch's Dune as well as The Last Starfighter. So please join us then. Again... Thank you so much for listening. We are your hosts, Chris Iannacone and Rob Lamorges. If you've enjoyed our show, please consider subscribing and following us on Twitter at, and Instagram at GetMeAnotherPod. Tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell people that you're neutral on. And we hope to see you next week 
as we continue to explore what happens when Hollywood says, get me another. <laughs> <laughs>